0: Hi everybody, I'm Christopher Brick here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications. Welcome back to the Intervals podcast, uh, a public humanities initiative of the organization. And I am here today as well to welcome Susan Breitzer, who is contributing our second of two episodes on the very notorious influenza pandemic of 1918. As Susan points out in her talk, The need to curtail group gatherings for public health reasons, which is something anybody who lived through 2020 can probably relate to, uh, that need to curtail group gatherings for public health reasons is not something new in American history, uh, not something new to the American experience with infectious disease, nor is the conflict that this has tended to create between public health authorities and uh, religious practitioners and believers, the great majority of whom remain attached to faith communities in the United States who in some way incorporate regular gathering as an important part of spiritual practice. It's that tension that gives focus to Susan's exploration of American religious responses to the influenza pandemic of 1918. Uh, Susan lives in North Carolina, where she's an educational content writer and an independent scholar specializing in U.S. religious and labor history. Independent scholars, incidentally, do some of the best history work out there, and there's always room in this organization for more of you, so please do sign up. You are a vital part of the profession, and we honor each of you. And By we there, I mean uh, the committee and OAH as a whole. And with that, I'm going to open it up to Susan Breitzer on American religion during the influenza pandemic of 1918.
1: This lecture will be on the topic of American religion during the Spanish influenza and the possibilities of religious cooperation during a pandemic. Safety measures during a pandemic and the question of religious exemptions is not a new issue in the history of the United States. This podcast will focus on American religious responses to the Spanish influenza, highlighting the similarities and differences between then and the present crisis. It will be in the larger context of the social history of the Spanish flu in the United States, with some background of the U.S. between World War I and the 1920s. It will provide historical perspective to the current situation by looking at how much American churches during this period complied or rebelled. In addition, this lecture will highlight the role that churches played in trying to help deal with pandemic, the pandemic, from offering space for the sick to relieve hospital overcrowding to its members and functionaries serving as volunteer nurses. This research was inspired by current discussion of how churches and synagogues have coped, in particular the acceptability of Zoom on the Sabbath versus other alternatives. There are multiple examples of American religious groups dealing with disease outbreaks throughout American history— and this reflects how much infectious disease from smallpox to diphtheria have been part of American history, especially during the pre-revolutionary period in the early republic. During the early periods, the religious response was likely to be as much theological as practical, with notable exceptions like Cotton Mather's promotion of inoculation against smallpox in the 1700s. Otherwise, um, it inspired sermons, individual prayers, and fasting. By the Civil War era, advances in scientific knowledge and secularism, as well as improved management of outbreaks, create a shift away from a signature role for religion in pandemic time. But the issue became pertinent again during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, and here the question responses of the churches was partially theological, but also increasingly practical. And they brought out the question of religious freedom versus public safety, as well as the role of religion in the public square. The Spanish influenza has stood out among modern pandemics until now as the worst in recent times. In a way, it was the first truly global pandemic, thanks to comparatively modern transportation and increased international interconnection. It got its name not because it originated in Spain or was worst in Spain, but because Spain, a neutral country in World War I, did not censor news of it as so many other countries did. Unlike the common flu, this flu was easily transmitted and could hit suddenly and hard, bringing death not long after infection. And unlike with COVID-19, no known effective vaccine was developed while it went on, and while some vaccines they tried appeared to work, it may have been a case of better safety measures or cases simply being on the decline. The Spanish flu first reached the U.S. in March of 1918, in which was the first of three waves between 1918 and 1919, with a possible fourth wave that lasted into 1920. The second wave, which began the fall of 1918, was the deadliest. The Spanish flu killed more people total than those who died in World War I, between 50 and 100 million worldwide, with 650,000 to 675,000 in the United States. The Spanish flu also stood out from other infectious diseases, in that primarily attacked young people in the prime of their lives, mainly in their 20s and 30s, and that may have had to do with a stronger immune response, plus the temptation of the patient to get up before they are fully well, which led to relapses with pneumonia. The Spanish flu incubated in military camps and was made worse by wartime conditions that include camp overcrowding and health services limited by military needs. The Spanish flu pandemic was part of what I'm calling the long 1920s, a period of change and upheaval that was much more than the better-known Roaring 20s. World War I, or rather American participation in it, was a redefining event for America. Functionally, it spelled the end of the Progressive Era, but in a way it carried a lot of progressivism forward. Examples include the achievement of women's suffrage, and more of moment for this lecture, there was an increased legitimization of public health. The Spanish flu came to the U.S. during the tail end of World War I as a result of the arrival of the American Expeditionary Force. It may have been a case of soldiers bringing over a mild flu that then mutated in Europe to the deadly form, which the American servicemen then brought back to the U.S. When it came to early public responses to the first wave, despite the existence of the United States Public Health Service, there was no coordinated national strategy for dealing with the pandemic, but there were federal advisements to state and local governments on how to respond. As now, civic responses varied by state and city. Timing mattered. Those cities who delayed implementing safety measures would, were hit harder than those who instituted them in immediate response to the threat of an outbreak. But the responses included many now-familiar measures, including the closing of public meeting places and the requirement of mask wearing. One example of successful safety measures found in an ordinance from Cleveland announced, all places of public congregation, including churches, theaters, moving picture houses, dance halls, lodge rooms, and all other places used for general meetings, whether public or private, are hereby closed. The ordinance also called for closing public parochial and private schools. In some instances, churches were given discretion as to whether or not to close, and in others, churches were allowed to stay open even when other public gatherings were closed, and in still others, it was the reverse. Sometimes outdoor services were permitted, though indoor ones remained prohibited. And as in the current pandemic, the restrictions were sometimes relaxed as the first wave of the flu subsided, only to be reimposed with the coming of a second wave. Some measures were controversial and may have appeared unfair and or inconsistent, but there is relatively little full rebellion in the terms of holding services as usual. And though until very recently this issue has been understudied, the responses of American churches and religious organizations during the Spanish flu pandemic can provide both perspective to what we're currently dealing with and guidance for better responses. I will now focus on the responses of a a selection of Protestant denominations and the Roman Catholic Church, plus as applicable for comparative purposes, Black churches and Jewish synagogues, acknowledging the different focuses for these last two communities during the pandemic, along with similar responses when it came to restrictions on worship. I will highlight the similarities as well as differences between denominations diverse enough to include the Latter-day Saints, the Reformed Church, the Assemblies of God, and the Church of Christ in order. Starting with the Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints was founded by Joseph Smith in 1830, with the publication of the Book of Mormon its main testament. After the new church faced persecution and Smith was murdered in 1844, Brigham Young took over the leadership of the church and led his followers to the territory that became the state of Utah, which today remains the center of the now international church. The Mormon church has displayed a long history of adaptability, including the willingness to give up polygamy once considered a central part of the religion. This adaptability of the church also include willingness to change practices in response to public health considerations. This included exchanging the common goblet used for communion, which for Mormons meant drinking water rather than wine, to individual drinking cups. Aside from long-standing Christian practice, the use of the common goblet may have partially reflected a time when even public drinking fountains featured a common cup. The movement towards individual cups as a sanitary measure began decades before the Spanish flu broke out, in response to both progressive-era concerns about sanitation and the rise of the germ theory of the spread of illness. But the outbreak of the flu in Utah that killed the then-Church President Joseph F. Smith and many other Utah citizens gave the Church the final impetus to change over, and even then, action was delayed between the death of Smith and the installation of Heber J. Grant as the new head of the Church, the latter thanks to the pandemic relayed relay delay of the Church's annual meeting. Notably, Grant, the Church's new President, was also Vice President and Board Member of the Utah Public Health Association from 1916. 1924. When it came to giving up worship services, the record is more mixed. On the one hand, the church hierarchy ordered the suspension of services from October to December 1918. On the other hand, there was some rebellion, such as in one report from Salt Lake City involving having services outdoors, either in front of the church or as the newspaper report described, marching to some park or recreation grounds. Looking next at the Reformed Church, this church, also known as the Christian Reformed Church, began as one of the main many breakaways from the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. It began in the U.S. as the Dutch Reformed Church and split from the Reformed Church of America in 1857. This church has been deeply influenced by John Calvin and is essentially Calvinist in origin and outlook. One of their significant beliefs is in the necessity of a civil government for the good of society and prevention of sin, and although this church did not embrace premillennialism, they saw intimations of the tribulations preceding the second coming in the pandemic, along with the war, the Russian Revolution, and American labor unrest, and these beliefs shaped the responses of both opposition and compliance. In the case of the first— A newspaper report from Grand Rapids, Michigan, acknowledged how hard the pandemic restrictions were on the church's members, who had been trained from childhood to regard regular church attendance as natural in their lives as eating breakfast. The report also pointed to the continued opening of schools, which, they argued, posed the greater danger of transmission than church services. But the Reformed Church also sought to make a theological interpretation of what they called the Churchill Sunday necessitated by the pandemic. And it is described in the banner, a church publication. This interpretation included the hope that the pandemic could have salutary spiritual effects, including a greater, greater appreciation of the value of our church privileges, something only appreciated when lost, as well as the value of fellowship with God's people that could lead to a new devotion to churchgoing. This editorial notably emphasized the importance of restri- respecting the law and governmental authority, even as it concluded with a prayer that the scourge of the flu ends soon. Looking now at the Assemblies of God. This is the largest subset of the Pentecostal Church and was first organized in 1914. It is among the evangelical Protestant denominations and in its history has conducted many missions, both foreign and domestic, the latter to Native Americans. During the flu pandemic, the A.G. Church became an example of how what is often considered fundamentalist theology could mesh with concern for public health. The church canceled revival meetings as soon as it became clear that they were spreaders, one might say super-spreaders, of disease. Likewise, missions were closed, and even the publication of their main organ, The Christian Evangel, was suspended. Yet they did not give up their ministerial focus to include prayer for and with the sick, even at personal risk. And most notably, despite a belief in God as a healer and testimonies of divinely assisted healing, they did not count on their faith to protect them. Therefore, according to one historian of the Pentecostal Church, they obeyed all government directives to close churches and encouraged at home worship. And perhaps the understanding they promote that at home prayer also counted for something made the difference. In fact, in One article in the Christian Evangelist pointed out regarding church closures, we're finding it a splendid opportunity to devote additional time to prayer for our missionaries and for the soldier boys. Finally, looking at the Church of Christ, which is distinct from the United Church of Christ, this church grew out of the nineteenth century Stone Campbell Restoration movement that called for a return to what they believed was the original apostolic form of Christianity. Their responses to the pandemic include the cancellation of services and a focus on feeding and tending to the poor. For example, there's one case of the Russell Street Church in Nashville, Tennessee, suspending services and instead opening its doors as temporary hospital space, relieving overcrowding in the city's hospitals. The church's members also stepped forward to help in the care and feeding of the poor during the pandemic, sometimes at the expense of their lives. And I should mention that feeding the poor was a bigger deal than usual at this time, when starvation was a possibility due to the illness and death of breadwinners in many homes. But most of these churches appear to cooperate with government directives. Reverend M.C. Kurfees of the Campbell Street Church of Christ in Louisville, Kentucky, remarked, It behooves us to cheerfully submit to this order and to exert all our energies in an earnest and sympathetic effort to cooperate with the benevolent purposes of our government to check this deplorable disease. Curfies also encouraged worship to continue at home, as he put it, following the Apostles. That said, some did object to what they saw as government interference and tried to negotiate exceptions, and in many cases the compromise with small gatherings in private homes. One of the best-known responses to the necessity of pandemic-related church closing came from J.C. McQuitty, the editor of The Gospel Advocate. McQuitty notably put up no objection to the closing of churches for disease prevention in contrast to his earlier protest against wartime orders to close churches to save fuel and coal, while breweries, theaters, etc. were left alone. As he explained, I do not understand that the government intends by this proclamation to interfere with Christians worshiping God as the understanding of the New Testament requires them to do. He called for Christians to continue to break bread, that is, to take communion, and to contribute offerings on the first day of the week, as he referred to Sunday. Even while recognizing the importance of assemblies, E. McQuitty proclaimed that if it was a matter of mercy to care for the sick in place of attending services, it was also a matter of mercy not to meet if doing so would put lives at risk. McQuitty therefore urged Christians to comply with public health restrictions cheerfully, and to seek to lead quiet, holy, and unblamable lives. He also expressed the hope that the absence of services would bring greater appreciation among Christians of what they're missing. A somewhat different, yet still essentially compliant view was expressed by E.C. Fuqua. Fuqua was a preacher who specialized in tent meetings and was best known for his controversial views on marriage and divorce. To a degree— Fuqua was willing to break ranks with McQuitty by naming the conflict between obeying God and being subject to what he called the higher powers, by which one can assume he meant secular powers. Fuqua described the governmental responses to the so-called Spanish influenza that included the unconditional closing of all churches throughout the state as the unconditional surrender of the kingdom of Christ to civil government for the time being, so it would seem. Interestingly enough, this was not a lead into total opposition to the government measures, though Fuqua did complain that some were using the government order as an excuse to avoid worship altogether. Rather, Fuqua advocated meeting in small groups in people's homes, reminding his readers that, We're allowed under certain restrictions to visit in the homes, and carefully observing these restrictions, we feel free to meet a few brethren in a private home and worship according to the New Testament teaching. Fuqua added, The assembly thus formed is not unlawful, and the worship rendered is lawful to God. Hence, in this, we combine loyalty to both. No word on whether this practice helped stem the spread of the flu, but it did indicate a certain open-mindedness to government regulations, even by a clergy who warned of its potentially deleterious effect on religious life. And now, finally, um, the Christian scientists. This sect was founded in 1879 in the U.S. by Mary Baker Eddy, in a time of increased secularization. The Christian scientists are known for their controversial emphasis on spiritual healing, and thus uneasy relationship with modern medicine. It should be known that they do accept some form of preventative care, such as dental work, and more of moment for this lecture, they encourage obedience to public health measures. During the Spanish Flu, the Christian Science Monitor, the church's main publication, following Christian science beliefs about the role of fear in disease, preached against what they called collective fear, but also gave attention to science, especially when it challenged popular assumptions. One report highlighted the Goat Island experiment, where not one of the subjects who were purposefully exposed to the flu caught it, suggesting that the unknown might be the lack of what I shall call a fear factor on the part of the volunteers. Fear, or the absence thereof, also played into other Christian science responses to the pandemic. In practice, compliance with public health measures appeared to be mixed. There is, for example, a case of one San Francisco church defying public health orders and staying open, only for its leader, Harry P. Hitchcock, and others to be arrested. And in a, a letter, or in the journal of the American Medical Association, the writer argued that a church in Boston that stayed open was not defying orders to close, but rather staying open based on a mere request by the city to close based on the judgment that church services were deemed necessary to the public morale. These examples notwithstanding, the Christian scientists of this period were described by one doctor as the first to respond to the slice suggestive of unsanitary conditions and the first to comply with fundamental health measures. Christian scientists also played a significant role in caring for the sick, especially in wartime military camps. And while the Christian Scientist emphasis on the role of fear may not have prevented contagion, it did empower Christian scientists to be a force of help during the pandemic. And looking broadly at other Protestant denominations, the evidence suggests that most found that they could get used to the churchless Sabbath. For example, George R. Stewart, a Methodist revivalist, urged intelligent Christians to trust in science and not try to tempt God to perform a miracle in the preservation of our health. Stewart argued that there was no contradiction between full faith in God and taking common-sense public health measures, and that any other course is the fruit of ignorance and false teaching. Even Billy Sunday, the renowned Presbyterian evangelist, whose multi-day 1918 Providence-Rhode Island crusade met today's definition of a super-spreader event, Complied with the subsequent order by city aldermen to shut down with the declaration, it is up to us to hope and pray, and there is nothing drastic in the order that was intended to stem the pandemic. Moving on from Protestant denominations to the Roman Catholic Church, it's important to keep in mind that this was the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church, and that most Catholics in America were either recent immigrants or children of immigrants. Catholics were also not as well accepted as they would become by the late 20th century. They were subject to prejudices based both on their presumed foreignness and their supposed loyalty to the Vatican over the U.S. This was especially significant in an age of general anti-foreignism and what was called 100% Americanism that both fueled anti-immigrant sentiment and continued after the implementation of immigration restriction— The Ku Klux Klan also targeted Catholics during this period, along with Blacks and Jews. Yet, despite these troubles, the Church in America would mostly distinguish itself for cooperation in the helping roles of its religious orders. Interestingly enough, despite the hierarchical nature of the Catholic Church, there appeared to be no uniform policy or pattern among American Catholic institutions during this period. Rather, they may well have been shaped by local governmental response to the pandemic. But the prevailing practice appeared to be compliance. For example, directive of Bishop Regis Canavan of Pittsburgh in October 1918 acknowledged that it is indeed a great hardship for Catholics to be deprived of the opportunity to assemble for mass and other divine services, but Canavan also emphasized that when civil authorities, whose duty it is to safeguard public health, deem it necessary to close churches and schools and take other restrictive measures, The only rule for pastors and people is to cooperate with the civil authorities, obey the law, and comply with regulations that are enacted for the common good. And one can't speak about the American Catholic response to the Spanish flu without mentioning Father James Coyle. Coyle, an Irish-born priest, was rector of the Cathedral of St. Paul in Birmingham, Alabama from 1918 until his untimely death in 1921 sadly is best remembered for being murdered by the kkk for having converted the daughter of of a methodist minister who was also a klansman to catholicism and then officiating the wedding of this white woman to a puerto rican catholic man in the trial the murderers were acquitted but Coyle should also be remembered for his role as a religious leader in birmingham during the pandemic and his advocacy for the closure of churches even against the argument of a pot possibly Protestant Bible teacher, that the pandemic was God's punishment, necessitating more, not less, worship. Coyle made his most eloquent case for following public health regulations in his message for Catholics that, based on its original publication in the Birmingham News, was likely also intended for general audiences in hopes of winning some converts to the Catholic faith. In it, he first showed empathy for the loss of the mass— pointing to the sufferings of Catholics in Ireland when it was under British rule, who were sometimes deprived of their masses, and he called for a new appreciation based on the understanding of this loss. He also spoke of the centrality of the mass to Catholic life and the supreme obligation of attendance. Failure to do so is considered a mortal sin in Catholic teaching. From there, Coyle underscored how lightly the decision to cancel public masses was not being taken, with the declaration that a legitimate excuse, of course, annuls the obligation. Father Coyle's visibility and his willingness to defend the central Catholic practice, while also affirming the necessity of its suspension, made him a powerful voice among the Birmingham faithful. That said, there were some rebellions among Catholic clergy. For example, there's one incident in Cincinnati in which Father William Scholl of the St. Joseph German Catholic Church held mass in defiance of public health orders until the police forced him to stop. But even then, there was a lot of visible disapproval of Scholl's action, including dignitaries of the Catholic Church joining the protest against the disregard of an order that was issued to safeguard the health of the community. Most often, dissent took place in the form of holding outdoor masses. Many churches advocate for them as an alternative cancellation of services, but health boards generally pushed back and only approved as the first wave of the flu subsided in November 1918. There is also an account of churches trying increasing the number of daily masses to spread out attendance. As with Protestants, Catholic arguments against church closures were often based on unfair application— Why, it was asked, were stores, saloons, markets, and the like allowed to remain open while churches were closed? Also, arguments were not so much about the denial of the public health necessity of church closures, but in favor of the spiritual benefits of worship in times of pandemic. No less a major figure in the American Catholic Church than James Cardinal Gibbons, then Archbishop of Baltimore, argued that it would be a much needed relief to our church going population if they could be allowed to attend brief morning services. Gibbons also observed that a number of calls upon our our physicians are simply the result of nervousness and could be considerably allayed by the reassurance of religion. Yet Gibbons chose to invoke a dispensation for his flock from the normal requirement of mass attendance during the pandemic. Beyond the question of services or no, a signature contribution of the Catholic Church was the donation of church space as temporary hospital space. For example, there are accounts of the use of ecclesiastical building space and um, Catholic schools for that purpose in Philadelphia and Brooklyn, and even more was the role important was the role of the non-cloistered nuns and other Catholic faithful in providing aid. There are many accounts of orders of religious women and men working long shifts to tend to the sick, sometimes at the risk of their own health or sacrifice their lives, and in helping to relieve overstretched healthcare personnel, the nuns and other Catholic religious. Personnel deserved to be called the heroes of this period, and indeed they received widespread praise for their work in helping mitigate the strain on the medical system of the day. The sisters were especially involved, practicing this volunteer nursing both in hospitals and in private homes. In Philadelphia, religious brothers also played a part in the effort that included priests and members of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, the latter a lay Catholic organization devoted to helping the poor. Also, the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic fraternal organization, play an important role in tending to the sick in multiple military camps, in addition to their better-known duties in providing recreational facilities that were open to all servicemen. And notably, this aid was not limited to the Catholic faithful, but often crossed lines of faith. For example, there is an account in Philadelphia of nuns working in a Jewish hospital, supervised by a Dr. Cohen. I'd like to look next at um, the situation of black churches and synagogues, which, as I mentioned, had other considerations. Black churches had to deal with the additional effects of racism and segregation that included exclusion of their sick from many hospitals. Yet segregation may have paradoxically slowed the spread of the virus within black communities, though it did not prevent scapegoating of black Americans as vectors. And from the evidence I have, responses among black churches were pretty similar to their, those of their white counterparts, closing as needed, encouraging at-home worship, and providing service to the needy in their communities. A notable voice from the, from the black Christian community was that of Reverend Francis J. Grimke, who is the half-brother of the abolitionist Sarah Angelina Grimke, and the son of a slave and her master. Grimke supported the closing and also sought to preach homiletical messages about the pandemic. In a sermon delivered November 3rd, 1918, Grimke addressed the hardships of church closings thus, It seems to me, in a matter like this, it is always wise to submit to such restrictions for the time being, adding that the status of churches as places of religious gatherings, as opposed to, say, pool halls, would not in the least affect the health questions involved. Grimke also suggested that while the epidemic raged, God has been trying in a very conspicuous and vigorous way to beat a little sense into the white man's head, asking that when it came to pandemic disease or any other natural disaster for that matter, of what avail is the color of a man's skin or his race identity. A notable exception to this cooperation among black churches is recounted from Indianapolis with the arrest of 10 apostolic Christians who, when taken to the police station, began speaking in tongues, making it challenging, to say the least, for the police to gather information. When it came to Jewish communities, most historical counts I've located thus far have more of a communal focus than synagogue or religious. Still, the institutional patterns appear to be simple, see, similar. As with churches, synagogue services were, were canceled and people were encouraged to hold it a home service at the hour when the public services are usually conducted. And this is similar to one of the current Orthodox Jewish practices, a Zoom is forbidden on on the Sabbath in the Orthodox interpretation of Jewish law. And part of the hope of promoting at-home services that would bring religious practice back into the Jewish home, where according to this Dayton, Ohio account, it had largely disappeared. And there are also similar accounts of rebellion when it came to worship, not much different from those of Christian churches. For example, a case in Cleveland of a synagogue rebelling by holding outdoor services. And while most accounts deal with the predominantly German-Reformed Jewish communities, whose concerns appeared similar to those of the churches, (coughs) I did find one account of the effect of the pandemic on Orthodox practice among the newest Jewish immigrants of this period. This was the case of the New York-based dean, the court of Jewish law, ruling in favor of leniencies when it came to mourning practices of Shiva (coughs) that traditionally confined mourners to their homes for the first seven days after a burial. In it, the rabbis declared, he who lives in narrow rooms or such a one who must have fresh air may go around outside for a few hours on account of health. This reflected the traditional Jewish emphasis on saving life, as well as the recognition of the social realities with which this religious court was dealing. So beyond individual examples, I'd like to look at why these organizations rebelled and and how they did so. Some argued for regulation rather than closure, similar to that that applied to wartime industries, because because intelligent stringent regulation can prevent absolutely the crowding of church edifices and can eliminate or reduce to a minimum the danger of germ distribution through such assemblages. Common theme is a, pro- a common theme is the protest of lumping churches together with movie theaters, pool halls, taverns, etc., <coughs> or worse yet, keeping these open when while churches were closed – an argument that has become cogent again with the recent Supreme Court case. When, when the religious liberty argument was invoked, and it was sometimes, the emphasis was more likely to be a plea to impose church closure only as a last resort rather than to oppose it altogether. For example, one editorial writer from Washington, D.C. argued, except in cases of absolute demonstrate unavoidable necessity, public worship in the churches shall not be prohibited by the civil authorities, because this involves a certain infringement that affected the free exercise of religious liberty. Interestingly, the writer noted the authorities know that th- through national and civil loyalty their prohibitive order will be obeyed, and precisely for that reason, he added, they should be reluctant to prevent men and women from doing that which their consciences, and in the belief of some of them, God's command compels them to do. Also, Milton J. Waldron, the pastor of the Shiloh Baptist Church, worried that D.C. officials were carelessly interfering with the freedom of worship, and making an appeal like current ones about houses of worship as essential services, Waldron argued that the Christian church is not a luxury, but a necessity to the life and perpetuity of any nation. Also, there are plenty of arguments that the decision to close churches was being made purely on a material basis, with no consideration for the spiritual benefits of worship during a pandemic. Beyond the binary of open as usual or closed, there are also a number of alternatives promoted. And in the days before Zoom and Livestream, these alternatives to regular and person services included services printed in the newspaper for home worship. These printed services could include sermons, service outlines, and scriptural readings, and there's a good example in the Indianapolis Star. In another example, the Muncie Evening Press of Muncie, Indiana, advertised about one such service. The sermons are worthy of attention of every reader of this paper, while the musical numbers and selection of scripture are most appropriate at this time. And it was hoped that a a rise in home worship would be a possible salutary effect of the pandemic. Open air services were promoted and practiced, along with small in-home services, possibly in the name of some form of compromise, recognizing the science but also appreciating the irreplaceable value of in-person services. And more than a century before Zoom or Livestream existed, there is a case of a church in Muncie, Indiana, arranging with a local telephone company to create call-in services. The local newspaper report, The Reverend F.E. Smith will deliver a short sermon and make a few announcements over the telephone wires, and his congregants will be listening to every word of his talk. The writer added, It is a legal way to get around the closing order, and perhaps for figuring today's online services, the sermon will be heard distinctly by those who call, and the service will see more of a reality when the organist plays a few selections. Finally, shorter services and good ventilation will also promote as options with multiple calls for both as safety measures. So, looking at some common takeaways… I am seeing a high degree of cooperation regardless of denomination, with relatively little difference between what we call mainline denominations and what are considered fundamentalist ones, and this is possibly reflective of a time when lines between denominations were more likely to be drawn doctrinally, and even what we think of today as liberal churches were characterized by deep religiosity. There was relatively little full rebellion in the form of holy services as usual, In most cases, it was a matter of grumbling but complying, and complaints were mostly on account of when it seemed like churches were being treated unfairly, forced to shut down while places of amusement were allowed to stay open. (coughs) And rebellion, active rebellion, took place mainly in the form of holding services outdoors. While a few chose to go to jail rather than give up regular worship, they seemed mainly newsworthy as a minority, and restiveness came only later as cases declined with the first wave— bringing new arguments for reopening churches, in one instance, on the basis that the purpose of church assemblages are such as to entitle them to be the very last to be absolutely forbidden by public authorities. Also, opposition to church closure was based far less on considerations of religious freedom. Rather, there was more emphasis on the spiritual benefits of worship during the crisis— and this is possibly reflective of a time of greater religiosity, that nonetheless managed to include a recognition of the limitations of what God could do. In other words, no contradiction between perfect faith and adhering to public health guidelines, which was not to say that there, there was an argument in favor of relying on faith alone and against public health measures, but fortunately there is plenty of counter argument within religious communities. And for the most part, there was a strong affirmation of the necessity of following the rules, and this was as churches often paid the price literally from the loss of tithes and offerings, though some found other ways to collect them. And in addition, churches and their members and religious functionaries tried to help mitigate the pandemic, whether through providing space for the sick or serving as volunteer nurses. In conclusion, these examples show the possibilities for churches across the spectrum to incorporate the public good into their religious mission, rather than regarding it as impinging on religious freedom. They also show the role of religious organizations in contributing to the public good, even across lines of faith. There can certainly be ways that that can be enacted today. And these examples additionally display the adaptability of churches and other religious organizations towards strengthening home observance, and theologically bridging the seeming divide between depending on God and acting in the human world. And regarding the limitations of these models for today, one thing that might bridge the modern divide, more challenging in a less religious world, would be a greater recognition of the potential for the role of faith as spiritual sustenance during a a pandemic. And, and for religious organizations to find active ways to be a force for good. The comparative compliance of this earlier period could be attributed to greater social cohesion, which was true to a degree, along with wartime patriotism that already encouraged self-sacrifice. But given that this pandemic was just part of the early upheaval of what, again, I've called the long 1920s, the responses of American churches and religious institutions appears the more impressive. These stories, therefore, need to be remembered, not only for the sake of better managing the current pandemic, but also for the future of organized religion in America. Thank you.
0: So before we move on to the q and A, I I just want to mention to everybody that if you were in any way confused by the difference between the Assemblies of God and the Church of Christ or the Presbyterians or the difference between Uh, orthodox or reform sects of Judaism. Uh, Susan uh, did us the favor of preparing a very lovely uh, chart that's going to live on the uh, landing page that OAH is setting up where other documentary resources associated with this season of the podcast can live. These are uh, teaching aids, things you can bring into the classroom with you, uh, or things you can just use to follow up on your own casual curiosity. Carrie Ann was with me for the Q&A on this one. Please enjoy. Susan or welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This comes from a church history perspective. Um, but you do have this concept of religious cooperation. So I wanted to ask you about those two things in particular. Like, What is it about church history that... Um, is how does this field work, what's special about it, and um, this concept of religious cooperation? I became
1: interested in this actually through um, my work at, in in Jewish studies and involvement in Jewish life and reading about um, how churches currently have or haven't um, cooperated when it comes to COVID regulations. And I thought that this would be a very interesting point of comparison. And I will say, as I got into this research, the one thing that really surprised me was that um, it was not really an all-or-nothing proposition, of either full services or completely shutting down, that the churches, by and large, were searching for some sort of compromise, such as all outdoor services, and also um, even when there was objection to the regulation, there was a pattern of cooperating anyway. Another scholar described it as contested compliance.
0: But it wasn't until I listened to your talk I realized how. What kinds of influential actors, faith communities, and these institutions end up becoming as part of the public health response? Because on the one hand, they they fortify people spiritually, emotionally, uh, internally, but they also congregate, right? Congregations come together and therefore introduce this additional vector for for transmissions.
1: Yeah, well, that's a thing about the tension between the two. Two points that I... I found particularly of use for this discussion was that um there was a somewhat different argumentation when it came to why churches should be kept open it was not so much a case of religious liberty per se as the role of religion as a spiritual as spiritual sustenance during the pandemic in fact there were some arguments that aren't too similar dissimilar to current ones about um religion being con- considered an essential service the question though was how to do it safely and um in the days before zoom and live stream there were um different ideas clearly but um one one that particularly stood out was promoting at-home worship and encouraging believers to understand that that counted for something of praying at home on your own
0: when i think about this period in particular uh the end of world war 1 going into the 1920s the relationship between science and religious folkways uh religious practice are becoming more fraught
1: yes i, I would say so and i think that was the biggest surprise and in, in that even in the religious denominations that we would think of as is fundamentalist and hence most likely to oppose science there there was very much um compliance even if reluctant and um theologically promoting an understanding that that um, one should not rely on divine providence that was possible and necessary to be both a firm believer and to take necessary safety
2: precautions. Susan, um, for those of us who listened to your lecture, I think um, you did a good job of bringing in so many different groups. Um, And my first question would be, if you could just give us a kind of schematic map of the groups that you cover in your lecture, um, and maybe talk about how you chose to talk about the groups that you did. What kinds of decision-making processes did you go through? Because obviously, I mean, you, you talk about so many, which is great, but uh, you can't talk about every denomination. right? Um, So how, why, and how did you make the decisions to include uh, the groups that you did?
1: a lot of um, particular denominations kept coming up, most notably the Reformed Church and the Assemblies of God and also Christian scientists. Plus, um, I had come up with one of the rare, at the moment, scholarly articles about um, religious responses to the Spanish flu pandemic that was about the Mormon... um, Willingness to um, change over from a common cup for communion to um, separate cups. And um, I ended up finding out just kind of as a common thread that s- so many of these denominations spotlighted that were um, just seemed so very traditional were in fact. Um, very willing to consider public safety and even make it a matter of religious principle that this is what a good christian did caring for one's neighbor and beyond protestant denominations there was plenty to write about the catholic church both there the clergy's willingness to suspend um, the otherwise required masses for safety and the very big role the church's organizations played in helping care for the sick. One of the most um, prominent Catholic voices for following safety measures was um, Father Coyle, who was an Irish-born priest, and um, shortly afterwards was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan for his having— converted the daughter of a Methodist minister and Klansman, and then um, marrying this white woman to a non-white Puerto Rican Catholic. So he was definitely um, speaking as an outsider. So that um, made it in some ways um, even more more significant that he was willing even to push back against Protestants who said um, we should be praying more and not less. And um, the other piece of um, the history of the Catholic response to the Spanish flu in America was how's they, how they went all out for um, helping the sick and feeding the poor. And um, feeding the poor was no small deal at a, at a time when breadwinners um, could get sick and people could starve because of that. And while traditionally in so many faiths, nursing and other forms of care was part of proselytization, in this instance, it in a way became ecumenical— They cared for people regardless of religion, and and there was even one case of um, nuns working at a um, Jewish hospital under the direction of a Jewish doctor.
2: I was just going to follow up um, on that discussion of the Catholic Church and their role in— helping provide for essential care, um, both medical and also just the day-to-day needs of food. Um, and, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about maybe more even in general of, of religious institutions, um, stepping in and, um, providing social services that in other countries, perhaps other countries who were being hit by the same, um, the same pandemic, um, that in America, there's this history of, you know, l- not having state support, but expecting individual charities often organized around religious institutions, providing care, um, and whether you can say a little bit more about that history.
1: Well, that has been a big Part of, um, the progressive era response to society's problems of the faith based institutions. Plus, there was the, um, Catholic churches' long history of providing social services in various forms, though traditionally it would have been limited to the faithful. Just as among Jews, um, Jewish relig- Jewish institutions served entire communities and um provided welfare services that in other countries might have been seen as the responsibility of the government, um. Another way that um, during the pandemic, this increased was the donation of of um, church and institutional space for, for hospital space with massive illness and hospitals being overcrowded. And, and that was considered some of their most valuable contributions, along with the volunteer nursing.
0: So all the archives are shut down. All the in-person research facilities are shut down. Um, Uh, What? Were you using just databases and newspapers and things like that?
1: Mainly databases and newspapers, what um, scholarly sources I could find for for background. And I did have to rely to a degree on um, recent secondary sources and um, locate... um, Primary sources through them. Unfortunately, there there were plenty that that were um, cited, and I was able to locate at least some of them. And the other piece of it I should mention is that um, even among the records I had available to me, and other scholars have said this too, there's been relatively little written about um, the churches in the pandemic, and that a lot to do with um, the pandemic. Competing for public attention with World War I. So it does take some digging as far as finding more personal accounts. Although um, in, the, in the case of um one of the churches I I looked at, there there were many accounts of um prayer at the bedsides of the sick and of Miraculous healing—the last, even while affirming that um, people should still adhere to, to
2: safety measures and not rely on miracles. Susan, you know, we're, as we're listening to these different podcast lectures and trying to draw. Um, themes or, or, um, things that go across, you know, from the past to the present moment that we're, we're in, we're living through right now. One thing that stood out for me in your lecture was, um, the idea of transparency of reporting right? And um, due to wartime censorship in World War One, you know, there was an underreporting or suppressed uh, reporting of the casualties of the pandemic. And so I know from um, teaching this in my history classes that, you know, that's why it was called the Spanish flu, right? Because they were right. not involved in the, um, the war. So they were the ones reporting, et cetera, and the king. So I'd love to hear what you think about, you know, that the idea of when a pandemic happens, and the idea of reporting and transparency and journalism, and how that um, is going to impair the way um, the public is is being able to um, to try to to fight these these tragedies, right? Because we're not know we don't know what's going on. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of of this topic? the idea of wartime censorship for the Spanish influenza? Well,
1: um, it was partly a result of censorship, as as long as um, the flu was primarily a European thing. But also, um, and I think I alluded to this, the idea of the flu as the invisible enemy it was not so much conscious censorship as the idea that this just was not as interesting as pressing, even though it really was. This was not a war with all the carnage and so forth that that would attract and hold people's attention. It was scary, but in a different way. And um, therefore was not really um, given the attention that it deserved because of the competing attention to the war.
0: Was the rhetoric of war, I mean, because this is arising in this I- immediate aftermath of the Great War, um, uh, and our, in our 2021 moment, right, uh, in the living memory of most Americans, but we've gotten very acclimated and accustomed to hearing Policy interventions, especially on the scope of what the response to the COVID-19 pandemic has required, characterized as a form of war. So we have war on drugs, war on crime, war on poverty. Um, uh, was it framed that way in 1918? I'd say it was
1: to degree. I mean, again, there was the competition with the actual war, but there was the same sort of spirit emphasized in fighting it. And I think it had the biggest aspect in terms of encouraging social cohesion and following the rules for safety, just as people were strongly encouraged to follow the rules for, for the war effort. And those two, in a way, became tied together.
2: Yeah, I wonder if um, the society, if American society or the the public was more apt to follow mandates from the government regarding the pandemic at this time because they were already in wartime mode in in terms of listening to you know what to do for the war effort, et cetera. Did you see that just um, kind of um, more a greater willingness to follow directives?
1: I I see it to a degree, and um, certainly in terms of the responses of the churches. I mean, there were even instances of making distinctions between opposing um, wartime restrictions on the churches to save fuel, but accepting restrictions in terms of um, public health with the pandemic. Um, and while that was ultimately going to break up to a degree by the 1920s, I, I
0: think it definitely held for the duration of the war. Building off from of Carrie Ann's question um, about uh, willingness to to comply with directive and willingness to uh, uh, submit or follow the lead of public health authorities and national governance. Do you see any of of, of those uh, multiple kind of identities overlapping and, and reinforcing one another?
1: I, yeah, I would say so. Um, and I was thinking in terms of the whole idea of American civic or civil religion— that um for much of history has been um a little different from white protestantism and and now we're facing a new and very necessary challenge of a more inclusive um civic identity that um nonetheless includes a sense of um common peoplehood and um solidarity with one another. And um, I would say when it comes to religious compliance, I am um, also considering the possibility that it is the loss, at least to a degree, of this white Protestant preeminence that has been behind some of the rebellion that you really didn't see a century ago.
0: That's a great uh, point. Thank you for that.
2: Well, yeah. And um, going back to what you know, you're know, you saying, Chris, about these multiple identities, I was uh, uh, really interested in your your discussion of the African-American churches and how um, African-Americans were, like with so many other things, people of color blamed for um, problems like the pandemic and seen as vectors for the disease. So I was wondering um, in what ways did race play a part in this exp- the experience or you know how did the african american churches um respond to these charges these racist charges and blaming and scapegoating of their people
1: so i think um uh, one big thing was um building up institutions and um in order to take care of one's own community but um the other that really caught my eye and I would like to look more of that was the theological um responses among um black pastors um uh, one of my sources was the sermons of reverend francis j grimke who um was the half-brother of um, Sarah and Angelina Grimke. And um among the two two main points he the two main points he emphasized was one that um one I found just really interesting kind of almost as a response to um why churches should be treated differently. And he's as opposed to say pool halls, and he said that just because um religious activity is going on in there doesn't mean that it's any less dangerous than the pool hall is uh
0: that it sounds i mean is is that the case at the time too? I mean that uh, it back in the eighteen experience is that that religious institutions are are making the same kind of arguments about about special exception, special provision, that this is um, a fundamentally necessary part of, of everyday life, that even something as dire as uh, an epi- a disease epidemic isn't powerful enough to override.
1: Yes, I, I would say so, and it was re- in response to different kinds of restrictions because um, then as much as now, there there was no unified national response. It really depended on state and locality, and in some states, um, the churches were less restricted when it came to um whether to shut down or not, and in some cases, the churches were more restricted. And in that case, the latter, there was definitely protest, though again, the language had less to do with um, religious freedom, per se, or free exercise than um, the idea of religion as an essential service and the importance of um, religion during this time. I would very much like, if possible, to make this a, a book project, since um, in some ways I've barely scratched the surface of this. I think there's a lot to be discovered, and um, I think there's going to be a lot of um, interest in in the years as we move past the pandemic, hopefully soon. And um, I've long believed in um, history as a um, guide to um, how we should think of current issues. And I I think this is one thing that if I can, I'd very much like to contribute to.
2: Well, then we'll look forward to reading it.
0: Thank you. And that's a wrap. Please join us again next time when Gerard Fitzgerald will lecture on the origins of aerobiology and airborne disease research. How cool does that sound? I'll catch you then.